I don't know. What is y'all's opinion on 52? There's two notes there we could sing ever since. Ever since. Ever since. I don't know. Unless you like air. Ever since. Ever since. Thoughts? And if you'll join me in our prayer for illumination. Your word, O God, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As we read, hear, and reflect on your word, grant us a deeper understanding of your truth. We ask that your spirit would illuminate in us your wisdom and purify us of our short-sightedness. Guide us and bless us this day and this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today's lesson will pick up right where Harry's lesson uh, left off uh, just two weeks ago. We are in Luke's account of the gospel, and Jesus has just begun his public ministry among the people. And so we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And it begins like this, And Jesus, that's the he there, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Now, Let's put this in the pictures, right? We like pictures, we like maps and things like that. So let's look at a map here. So we have Nazareth here, we have Capernaum here, we have the Sea of Galilee, and this is the Jordan River that uh, flows south there. Now if you notice in the passage, it says that Jesus went down to Capernaum. Well, when we look at maps, we look at that and go, no, he didn't, he went up. But you have to keep in mind that he went down in relation to elevation, right? So the Sea of Galilee actually sits below sea level, and so Nazareth is kind of up in the hill country, and so yes, they went down to where the the water collects, you know, the lowest spot. So he went down to Capernaum, uh, a city of Galilee. Well, Capernaum, we've got this uh, next picture here. It was a small fishing village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, And you can see here, these are uh, some of the ancient ruins that if you were to travel there today that you could see. And in the foreground here, this is the Sea of Galilee. So it's a a nice area. seems fairly fertile. But it was uh, this city of Capernaum, this little town, was uh, a fishing village. And it's estimated that around 1,000 to 2,000 people lived in Capernaum during the first century, during uh, Jesus' day. Um, As an extra little tidbit... The name Capernaum means village of Nahum. So if you take that last part, Capernaum, that means the village of Nahum. We don't know if it has any connection with the Old Testament prophet Nahum or not, or maybe just some guy named Nahum, or to what that word Nahum also means, which is comfort. It could mean the village of comfort. Not necessarily that relevant to anything today, but I just thought it was kind of interesting um, that uh, we hear these names, we read them in scripture, but, you know, there might be more to them than, than what we know. Well, the next sentence in our passage gives us some more details to take into consideration as we're, as we're working our way through the text. It says, okay, and he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath for them was Saturday, a day of rest and of worship. And this is taking place, this scene takes place inside the synagogue. And how do we know for sure? Well, because verse 33 would tell us, but I'm not going to 
jump to that just yet, so you're going to have to take my word for it for now. So it's, it's on the Sabbath, they're in the synagogue, and Jesus is teaching them. Um, I also wanted to put this picture up. The neat thing is, you know, archaeologists do some great things, and they've actually excavated the ruins of the ancient synagogue in Capernaum. And it's actually probably the, what some scholars say is like the best preserved ancient uh, synagogue or synagogue in the ancient world. And you can find it there at Capernaum. What's interesting about this is, is the structures you see here are dated to about the second century AD, so after Jesus. But they can tell where the foundations of the original synagogue were. So where the original synagogue was, destroyed probably by the Romans during the Jewish revolts, they rebuilt right on top of that foundation, and that that was common in that time. And so while that structure is not exactly the same, the location likely is the same where Jesus uh, was in the synagogue teaching. So you can go to Capernaum and walk around um, this place. So what what did a synagogue kind of look like? I thought I'd just throw one more visual at you. Um, so this is a, a rendering. There's a, a pool over here, a purification pool. The entrance to the synagogue would have been right here. And then this is, uh, would have been the closet where they kept the scrolls of the law and uh, the prophets. And then all around here you can kind of see the seating where the assembly would gather. And so what would they do during synagogue or in the synagogue on the Sabbath? Kind of similar things that we do in our services today. They would uh, uh, sing songs, most likely uh, many of the psalms. They, would, uh, had, they had prayers that they read. They would read scripture, followed by an interpretive homily, and it would conclude with a priestly blessing. So a very similar format. We're, we're used to that, right? Well, as we heard two weeks ago in Harry's sermon, and as we will see again in our text today, Jesus was either invited to read and teach in the synagogue or given permission to do so. So now that we have some pictures in mind, we can kind of put ourselves maybe in that setting a little more, let's read our whole text for today. And uh, it's an interesting one. I'll just leave it at that for now. Luke chapter 4 verses 31 through 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, you read this, the text is the text. And to be a in faithful study of God's word, sometimes you have to attend it as it is. But I don't know about you, but passages like this can make me feel uncomfortable. Uh, our Western minds, our Western civilization, 
I don't think we like to delve too much into the whole demon, evil, spiritual being topic. Nowadays, at least in our part of the globe, the northern and western hemisphere of Earth, demons and demon possession are limited to Hollywood movies that are made for one purpose and one purpose only, to scare the you-know-what out of you. I hate those movies. (laughs) I'm a baby about two things, being sick and scary movies. I just, I can't handle either of them. Um, Yeah, if you like scary movies, I don't know if we can be friends. But whether you are comfortable with this topic of demons or not, it, is, it was within the normal worldview of the biblical authors. And we see it in our text today, and Jesus has a conversation with one. So I think we should at least start with this topic. And what is the background here with demons in the Bible? And um, I read a book in preparation for the sermon today, because I was like, man, what am I going to really say about this? Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's, it's called Demons. Uh, what the Bible Really Says About the Powers of Darkness by Michael Heiser. And uh, he's, a, uh, he's an academic. He's um, uh, a scholar. And this book is it's, it's not for like pleasure reading, nighttime reading, uh, book club people that attend the book club. Probably not for you either. It's kind of it's dense. He goes into a lot of things. Um, but I think it's, it's well thought out. And um, so I've, I've kind of used this as a, at least a, a helpful guide as we move along on this topic of, of evil in the Bible. Well, to begin the topic, we really have to go back to the first pages of the Bible in Genesis. So remember, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 describe God's wonderful and mighty works of creation in which he specifically creates humankind in his own likeness and image to reflect his glory and to be his his co-regents, his partners in ruling the world. And everything at this point, all is good. All is even very good. But there's also this cosmic drama It's about to unfold in the pages that follow the creation account. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are often referred to as the primeval history, meaning like the the origin history. And these chapters not only provide us, they're not just independent stories that are just meant to be read by themselves and put down, but they're doing something in these first chapters that sets up the reader for everything that follows in the biblical text, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So these first chapters become a sort of lens in which we look at Scripture and understand the world. And so uh, Heiser and other scholars, they they look at these first 11 chapters and they have distinguished what they refer to as three divine rebellions. And the first is Genesis 3. Everything is good until you get to Genesis 3. And then all of a sudden, in the garden, there is this mysterious, crafty, serpent creature. A creature that it says the Lord God made. And in Genesis chapter 3, you know, we don't get a full description of who this, who this thing or what this thing is. Or who it is. And that's important for us to realize that the Bible's not a reference book. Oh, what do I think about this? I'll flip to this page and here's everything it says the Bible is, is complex. It's a narrative, and it unfolds through history and through time, through many different works, many different uh, 
authors, many different time periods. And so this original rebel, as, uh, as they call him, is identified as the great adversary of God, the evil one. A creature who chose to rebel against God. And this is developed more as you go through the Old Testament, uh, during the Second Temple period and Second Temple literature, and even into the New Testament. There's an interesting part in Isaiah 14 where it describes how the, the king of Babylon, remember that was a king that the Israelites didn't like, they came and conquered uh, Jerusalem. But Isaiah 14 describes how the king of Babylon will be disgraced because of his arrogance, and it, it puts him beside this rebel of heaven. And it says in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the the mount of assembly on the heights of Zephon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the, the pit. This original rebel, as we're going to call him right now, tried to rise above God, but then was cast down instead. And so that was kind of an a overview of what they go into much more detail. It's the first divine rebellion. The second occurring in Genesis chapter 6, uh, specifically at the very beginning. This is right before Noah and the flood, right before that story when things are just kind of going into chaos and there's these Uh, There's a description of the sons of God having relations with the daughters of men, and it mentions these Nephilim characters, and and all this stuff is happening, and there's just evil widespread in the world. And so all this represents another rebellion of spiritual creatures, and especially in Second Temple Jewish literature, these fallen spiritual creatures become uh, the origins of what would become, in the Greek language, demons unclean, disembodied spirits. And so the last divine rebellion is Genesis chapter 11. And this portrays the building of the Tower of Babel. And it's not coincidence, I I don't think it's coincidence, that this event happens or occurs in what what becomes Babylon, you know, the great enemies of God's people. But essentially what happens at the Tower of Babel is creation is trying to take things into their own hands and rise up to the level of God. It's a rebellion against God. And then God disperses the people into many nations. And to get more of the story, you have to kind of fast forward a little bit. And I want to read this part out of Deuteronomy. So towards the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy chapter 32, as a part of his song, he offers these words Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your fathers and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. So Moses is saying, remember a long, long, long time ago when the Most High, that is God, gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind, Tower of Babel. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. So there's this idea that, that all the other nations of the earth, God, you know, kind of dispersed unto these other sons of God. But Israel, 
through the family of Abraham, that would become God's own nation to care for and to bless the other nations through the family of Abraham. There are other allusions to, to these ideas in the Old Testament. And they really get developed more, like I said, in, in the writings of the Second Temple period. We don't have time to cover all that. I know I'm throwing a lot at you right now. Maybe Sunday school topic, Bible study topic. But I'm trying to get at if whether you're comfortable with this idea of this whole spiritual realm, angels and demons and all that, whether you're comfortable with it or not, we cannot deny that the spiritual beings, both good and bad, were a part of the Old Testament and New Testament worldview. Bringing this into focus, through those three divine rebellions, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, they developed three distinct evil spiritual forces in, in the categories of the New Testament. The first being the Satan, the devil, the chief evil one, the original rebel of heaven, the serpent. Revelation uh, 12.9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the one who masquerades as an angel of light. Jesus himself refers to him as the father of all lies. This, this specific character of the New Testament we know is Satan. The second category, demons and unclean spirits that plague the world and people who are under the command of the, the chief evil one. And we see this in our, our passage today. This man who is possessed by an unclean demon. And then the last category, the ruling powers. The powers of darkness that rule over the nations being the consequences of the Tower of Babel. And these categories are what Paul has in mind when he, when he talks. You remember the, the part in Ephesians where it talks about putting on the armor of God? Like, we like that. We're like, yeah, put on the armor of God, cool. But do you know why he says to put on the armor of God? He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here's kind of the, the overall picture. The world is run amok with evil. Satan, evil spirits, principalities, and powers are in rebellion against God, and they are trying to keep humans from believing in and walking in the light of the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Chaos disorder, violence, and suffering have come upon the world because of a rebellion against God. On earth there is pandemonium. Right? We know that word means like, like chaos and craziness. There's pandemonium. But it's actually two words. Pan meaning all. right? So like we're in a pandemic meaning that this virus is like global. It's all around the world. As opposed to an epidemic which is just localized. So 
pandemonium, pan meaning all, demonium, demon. <laughs> it means all the demons. That's what uh, the word pandemonium comes from, all the demons. I want to offer a quote from, from this book, just one quote today. I'm not going to go crazy with quotes. It says, the portrayal of demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits in the Gospels is quite consistent with Second Temple Jewish literature and thought. For New Testament writers, the defeat of evil spirits was, like, was firmly linked to the appearance of the Messiah to inaugurate his kingdom, as well as his death and resurrection. The resurrection and ascension are the centerpiece of the New Testament understanding of the victory over supernatural rebels. I think thinking in these terms when we, when we read the biblical text is helpful. It's helpful for us to better understand the, the mission and the ministry of Jesus as the Messiah, especially when we get to these passages. And, it's, and when we get to passages where Paul talks about the significance of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. Because here's, here's the gospel. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, and to, which would overthrow all those evil powers. On all, in all three categories, in all three spheres. And even 1 John 3.8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared, that's something maybe to take note of, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There was this messianic expectation that came out of uh, the Old Testament and especially the Second Temple Judaism that this Messiah would conquer all evil, to put everything back, to restore everything as God intended. And as we go back to Luke's gospel account, it's no, I don't think it's any coincidence that Luke records the, that the very first thing that Jesus does after he's baptized is he goes out in the wilderness to confront who? Satan. To confront the devil. That's the very first thing that Jesus does after he's baptized. And when Satan takes Jesus and he takes him to a high place and looks over the kingdoms of the world to offer Jesus authority, basically Satan says, see all those kingdoms? They're under my control right now. But if you would just bow down and worship me, I'll give them all to you. But Jesus says, no, you worship the Lord God alone. Jesus knew that Satan ultimately did not have ultimate power over the world, that Jesus himself would. And that every knee on earth and in heaven and under the earth would bow to Jesus. I think it's also significant that in Luke's account of the gospel, the first real act of ministry that we see Jesus do is cast out this demon. We see it in our scripture passage. A man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. For us, the surprise in the text is, is the demon thing, right? Probably. But for them, the surprise in the scene wasn't the demon. That was kind of a, a part of their world. What surprised the people was Jesus' authority over it. That's what grabbed everyone's attention. 
One commentary states that Jesus' triumph over demons was a clear indication that God's kingdom was breaking into the present age in a new and decisive way, driving back demonic forces and setting people free to serve God. Jesus had divine authority. That's what this passage is about. The demon itself identified Jesus, not only as Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, the Holy One of God. And he asked, what have you to do with us? Have you come here to destroy us? The demon knew that it was the true Messiah's role to exert power over evil. Sometimes I think we reduce the gospel to be just about you know, me and my personal salvation. But really the gospel is much bigger than that. The biblical authors had so much more in mind that Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed son, was ushering in God's kingdom by exerting his authority over all powers. When Paul defends Christ's resurrection, he says, Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now before I, I draw to a close, I want to completely shift our focus, okay, away from the, kind of the demon in the spiritual realm, and focus on the congregation that was present in that synagogue. Remember, this whole scene was taken, taking place inside the synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath. And so the first thing I want to note is how it describes how the people were captivated by Jesus' teachings, his message. And, and this whole scene leads people to ask, what word is this? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. What word is this? We don't know specifically what the subject of Jesus' message was on that that Saturday, that Sabbath day. But that's not what is in focus here. What is in focus here, the big takeaway from the passage, is the unmistakable authority of Jesus. It's, it's like the, the beginning of Jesus' great commission to us. All authority in, on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them and, uh, to observe all that I have commanded you. So I think we should ask, when we look at this text, or a text like this, what is this word for us? This is the message for us. Jesus has authority. Jesus is Lord of all. His word has power. His gospel is incredible. And it's more than we can comprehend. The authority of Christ over us leads us to be changed, to be transformed, and to be sent to continue his ministry. I I also think that there was someone else in that synagogue on that Sabbath day uh, that our passage doesn't name. I think one of those people was Simon Peter. And why do I think this? Because the very next verse following our passage today says, 
And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. I don't think Jesus was into breaking and entering. I'm thinking that Simon Peter was, was there and invited Jesus, or maybe Jesus already, they knew each other. But if that was Peter's first time to hear Jesus, it would be a moment that would change his life forever. forever. And in fact, in the very next chapter, in the very next scene, um, we know that Jesus, it's when Jesus calls his first disciples, and his first disciple was Peter in the boat. Um, oh, I forgot, I put this graphic up there. So this was somebody's rendering. I have no idea if it's accurate, but this is where they kind of positioned the synagogue and then the traditional side of Peter's house, Sea of Galilee here. So this would be in Capernaum. Makes sense if Peter's a fisherman, he'd be near the sea, be in Capernaum. And if they're just walk, you know, going over to Peter's house after uh, the, ser- the synagogue service, or, then sure, why not? But I'm not going to hang my hat on that. I just thought that was interesting. But this moment, I believe, with Jesus in the synagogue and teaching and the power of his word had a profound impact on Peter. That when, Pe- when Jesus called Peter, Peter responded. All right, now the last thing I want to, uh, last point I want to make is I want to note that this man with the unclean demon, where was he? He was present in the synagogue on the Sabbath, meaning he wasn't just someone Jesus just passed on the road somewhere. I think each of us, in a way, are represented by this man. Maybe not possessed by a demon, or at least I hope not. But each of us are in need of spiritual healing. We are in need of Christ. We are in need of the freedom and life that come through Jesus. And we are in need of God's grace and Jesus' power and authority over our lives. So maybe you've been feeling like the, the weight of the world's been on your heart. Maybe it feels like you're, you're in a, a spiritual battle of your own. Maybe you don't, maybe just simply don't feel like you're in control of anything that's going on or you're, you're helpless in your circumstance. But hear this each of us are a part of this great narrative of redemption in which God is claiming the hearts of people that would no longer be under the power of darkness and death, but that would receive his life and his grace and his goodness. So receive the life that Jesus offers. And live under his great power and authority. Will you pray with me? Our great Redeemer, Messiah, and Lord, we confess that we often lose sight of of this great redemptive drama in which our lives are very much a part of. Without you, we would be utterly and completely lost and without hope. Left Left on our own, the powers of evil and darkness are too great for us. But we live in the midst of a suffering world, a fallen world, a world that is prone to to violence, a world that is prone to oppression. But we are not without hope. For you, Lord, are our hope and our strength. We rejoice in the words of Psalm 36 and make them our prayer of praise to you. For your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep.
How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. And Lord, we pray now for those in and around our congregation in need of your care 